Zero Business Podcast is brought to you in association with ED's Sustainable Business Cover Podcast and is the only place where corporate responsibility and energy professionals can get under the skin of the world's most ambitious emissions reductions targets. So welcome and enjoy the journey to a net zero future. Welcome along to ED's Net Zero Business Podcast, our spin-off podcast series focusing on the growing need for businesses to align their strategies with climate science by setting net zero emissions goals. I'm ED's senior reporter, Sarah George, and I'm going to present this episode, so a very warm welcome to you. Since the UK set its net zero target in law, more and more businesses and public sector organisations have been attempting to get ahead of the curve, strengthening carbon and energy strategies, and pledging to become net zero businesses well before the 2050 deadline. In our usual episodes of this podcast, we speak to one organisation to get some behind the scenes insight into target development and delivery. Guests this year so far have included EY and Ella's Kitchen. This month, however, we are taking a brief but detailed look at one of the sectors that is crucial to the net zero transition, heat, in a special episode sponsored by Centrica Business Solutions, so a kind thank you to them. Heating is the UK's single biggest source of annual emissions. When industrial processes are included alongside the need to heat commercial and domestic buildings and water, 37% of the UK's annual national emissions are covered. While we've made great strides in decarbonising electricity, the journey to low-carbon heat is, in the grand scheme of things, much less mature. But accelerating action and increasing ambitions in the next few years will be vital to ensuring that the long-term work is off to a strong start. With all of this in mind, I hope today's episode answers some of your pressing questions about low carbon heat. We're going to be providing a broad overview of the current state of play regarding policy and market conditions before coming on to some specific top tips for best practice in organisations, all sectors and all sizes. Our first guest for this episode is the Heat Pump Federation's Director for Growth and External Affairs, Bean Beanland. Bean joined the Federation at its formation last year and brings a wealth of experience from more than 11 years in the UK's energy space. He provides an overview of the state of play in the UK's heat pump industry and in policy related to the area, discussing what this context means for businesses. So here is that conversation in full. Yes, good morning, Bean. It's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. How are you? Oh, all good. Thank you very much indeed. Enjoying a bit of sunshine at last, which is making a, a big difference. Yes, a smile on your face straight away, doesn't it? Of course. And whereabouts in the world are you are you calling from? Are you at home? Uh, I am. Yeah, I work from my office predominantly down in Wiltshire, in rural Wiltshire. So we're we're a mile off the tarmac, and there's no gas in the village. So we are the we are the epitome of the rural site. <laughs> Great. Well, I'm sure we can come on to a lot of a lot of that. I know we've been talking about that off of the call. Um, But yeah, just to get started, I wanted to talk because I don't think we've spoken since you joined the Heat Pump Federation because it was set up during 2020. So it'd be great to hear a little bit more about about that for um, for the benefits of the listeners. Excellent. Yes, uh, of course. So 
the Heat Pump Federation, you're right, was established. Uh, we went for a soft launch at the end on the 1st of April last year. We had planned a big London launch event um, for uh, mid-March. And whilst it wasn't quite into the first lockdown, we started to lose speakers from uh, you know big corporates who said, no, sorry, can't let our people travel to London. Um, so we had to can that, but the need hadn't gone away. So we went for a soft launch. So the Heat Pump Federation has been created to broaden, you know, broad church is a term that gets used an awful lot and probably overused, but it is genuinely to provide a significantly broadened church for heat pump representation in the UK. So we've, we've got the Heat Pump Association, which is predominantly domestic air source centric. We have the Ground Source Heat Pump Association, which clearly does what it says on the tin. Most of the members also work with air source and, and other technologies. But there was nothing really that allowed all of the additional elements of the built environment industry to get involved. Many of them were approaching me and saying, we can see that electrification is coming down the track. We want to be involved. We want to have a, a voice in the collective. You know, many of our members have really good access to government already. You know, Sandra Kerr and uh, Octopus and Good Energy, they've got good access to government themselves. But they recognise that there's a value to the collective. And, uh, and I'm pleased to say that they've seen that value and recognised it. And so even though we've been COVID restricted, haven't been able to get out and meet people and, and do the proper introduction that you'd like to do face to face with potential members, uh, we picked up about 80 members in the first year. Uh, and and I have seen some significant growth in the responses from government and other bodies. You know, they are recognising what we are seeking to do as an industry, uh, off-chem as well, uh, which is really excellent. Fantastic. And of course, other than the R word restrictions, there is the other COVID R word recovery. So a lot of talk about um, the green recovery and and building back better. And you mentioned there that this is now on the table of government and uh, have been positive moves. Um, but also we're still waiting on the heat and building strategy. And obviously the Green Homes Grant is all over the headlines at the moment. So I'd like to talk a bit more about the Federation's policy wish list, which I know is something you've been working on very recently. Uh, yes. So build back better. Definitely. Green recovery. Definitely. Recognition. Absolutely. That is definitely improving. So we are in a political situation now that we've never had before. Um, so the last 12 years or so that I've been involved in the industry, we've had obviously things like the Renewable Heat Incentive, which uh, latterly were starting to really work for the heat pump segment, but we've never really had political support. And so the Prime Minister's announcement of a 600,000 units a year target by 2028, uh, and the various statements around uh, in the 10-point plan uh, and then in the energy white paper, are putting our segment and our technology into a new political position that we've never had. Um, what we don't yet have is the raft of firm policy that's required to allow us to deliver on the 600,000 units a year. Uh, and so that is very much now the target. Uh, and you're quite right. You mentioned the, the, the Green Homes Grant, which was um, a, a, a sort of tragedy uh, which I think we sort of recognised. I mean, the, the difficulty for us is that our technology, particularly ground and water source, has a long gestation period. It has a long leading. It go, it, it's years from drawing board and concept to delivery. And so any government interventions that are only measured in months 
um, actually are not that helpful. Uh, we cannot train installers in months. You know, it takes you know, years to train really good installers and good system designers. Uh, and so if we're going to build the sort of increase in employment that the, that the sector can deliver, we need long-term strategic policy. And so that's very much the, the focus. And uh, as you alluded to, we're, we're currently talking to members at the moment and saying, you know, what's on your wish list? Uh, and many of them are looking for long-term strategic policy which enables them to start to invest. And that's not just investing cash in, in kit and hardware and what have you, it's investing in their people, of course. Uh, and that is for us all part of the COVID recovery and the build back better. I mean, can we invest in people, invest in skills? That was a tenant for the Green Homes Grant. And um, it would have been, I think, our preference. And indeed, we wrote to the ministers uh, and were lobbying, lobbying the chancellor when the, 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 before the decision was made. Uh, pointing this out and saying, actually, allow us to work with you to reform the Green Homes Grant, uh, make it more attractive to the industry. Uh, and that, of course, would then free up the ability for the consumers to get their vouchers across the line uh, and give us, you know, two, three, four years. Sadly, sadly, we didn't get that. But uh, but there's every hope that the message is now getting through that long-term policy is required and that doesn't mean long-term intervention you know it's quite interesting during this canvassing how financial support does get mentioned of course it does but actually it's not the dominant feature of what our members are looking for and then so i talked about the government approach and where that lies so i wanted to get a feel on how the recognition and adoption is among like the clients that the members work with so do these businesses see local carbon heat as a focus in in their COVID-19 recovery yet and if not what needs to be done? I'm not sure that that's anything like strong enough I I think that we're we're shielded in the UK you know, we, we talk about climate change and uh, and what have you but we don't really see the impacts of climate change in the UK yet I mean the weather patterns are going a little bit haywire and we're getting funny weather but it's not really causing massive problems. Uh, and so I think that the awareness of the connection between climate change, carbon, the way we heat, what we've historically been doing, isn't yet strong enough. Lots of people are have a peripheral of awareness. You know, David Attenborough, bless him, national hero, done a fantastic job. Greta, obviously, done a, a, a great job in raising awareness. But you'll be amazed how many people have no idea that burning gas in their gas boiler at home contributes to climate change. Nearly half the population, I think it was, 45% or something, had no idea that that was a contributory factor. Um, and, and equally, they have no idea that it's also a contributory factor to air quality. Uh, and for many of our um, urban uh, local planning authorities that we talk to, air quality is now actually a pretty well level on the agenda with, um, with climate change. So there are these two drivers in the, in the urban environment, clearly different in the rural environment. So I think awareness isn't good enough. Uh, and that is something else that's coming out of the conversations we're having with members at the moment. They are recognising that awareness isn't good enough. And I think government also accepts that awareness isn't great. And that was one of the problems with the loss of the Green Homes Grant. It had actually raised awareness with the public in a way that none of the other interventions to date had done. Even the RHI hadn't raised that level of awareness. 
Um, so um, I think the messaging that went from the closure of the Green Homes Grant was a shame because it sort of tells people that actually this is less important than it really is. You know, people think that dealing with climate change and decarbonisation is going to be expensive. They should wait until they see the bill for not doing it. For sure. And I wanted to come on to that there. You mentioned about a couple of things that I wanted to touch on. So you mentioned about costs and then you mentioned about the difference between priorities and approaches in urban and rural contexts. Um, but I obviously know that every context is going to be different. Every business is going to be in a different location and at a different place and might be looking at a different technology. Um, but I wanted to get your advice on um, on top tips for for businesses. Um, looking to adopt a low carbon heat technology? I think it's very difficult at the moment because nobody is quite sure where the weight of future regulation and legislation is going to fall. You know, we are still waiting to see what government's really long term view is. You know, it's going to move, clearly, it has to move from subsidy and, and, and grants to regulation. But we're not quite clear whether that's going to be all regulation or whether it's going to be stimulated by uh, changes to the tax regimes that would incentivize businesses to invest in low carbon technologies. You know, there are there are other ways You know, if, if we split out the domestic consumer from the commercial consumer um, for businesses, you know, there are other ways to incentivize them. Uh, into investing in low carbon technologies. And I think that there will be an increasing um, view of uh, how can we use the tax uh, regimes in all its shapes and forms, um, including CO2 accounting, in order to encourage businesses. Somebody put a, a point to me yesterday and said that if a firm's accountants are telling them that they should be doing these investments because they make good sense. Uh, the fact that the advice is coming from somebody that they've already trusted to give them financial advice, if you like, uh, will actually have a, a potentially has a bigger impact than someone from uh, a renewables company coming in and saying, you know, buy my latest shiny box because uh, because it, it, it's good and it's going to save the planet. So I think that that actually is a factor. Uh, I really do. For businesses, I think that's a factor. A domestic market, obviously, completely different. Then I think that we have to start to raise the pro raise the profile of things like corporate responsibility. You know, we a lot of businesses are already aware of what they're what they're being obliged to do. But I think we can raise that uh, visibility that much further. We can use those sort of soft impact um, strategies to get businesses to take these things uh, much more seriously. Uh, and so we can talk about providing business rates, advantages. Uh, we're talking about now trying to encourage uh, manufacture in the UK of, of low carbon devices. And of course, from our perspective, that's heat pumps. You know, will we start to see mass production of heat pumps in the UK? Absolutely, we will. And uh, government, I know, is uh, very keen to see that because they see that as, as part of you know, onshoring job, uh, job creation. Uh, for me, one of the big growth sectors will be drilling. Uh, if we are drilling boreholes in the UK, um, then that genuinely is onshoring energy supply. So every time we drill some boreholes, we're onshoring, we're displacing largely imported natural gas now. Uh, we're bringing that energy source onshore. That is UK labour paying UK tax. So you would say that that's a very good area for the Treasury to be looking at and, and for HMRC to be looking at in terms of providing incentives 
to grow that sector. And from the public purse's perspective, that's an investment in infrastructure. Uh, and I think it's really important that we recognize the value of infrastructure in what we're doing because you know, it's a hundred year investment. We're, we're putting boreholes down, which will be delivering energy for a hundred years plus. Uh, and, uh, and I think from the taxpayer's perspective, getting that infrastructural value in place would be really, really beneficial. I guess in some ways it's annoying that tax day has already come and gone, but I'm, we're expecting more, more tax days later this year, so we'll have to keep our eyes out. Well, I think that's one of the it's one of the sort of strange benefits of the, the COVID-19 situation is that um, necessarily um, the Treasury is is having to keep agile. Uh, you know, it's having to keep to some extent its powder dry. You know, nobody's quite sure what's going to happen when the furlough scheme comes to an end. Uh, and so uh, understandably, we are you know into sort of short termist financial planning, I think. But hopefully. Uh, the rollout of the, the vaccine program and all those things will allow us to start to move to some sort of normality. And we can see the whole climate change and build back better scenario driving right back to the top of the pile where it should be. Yes, thanks once again to Bean for sharing his knowledge and for taking his time. In the interest of time, I'm going to be moving swiftly on to our second guest speaker, Centrica Business Solutions Business Development Manager for Heat Pump Solutions, Michael Firth. Michael has worked with clients to help them adopt renewable and decentralised energy solutions for five years, so is well placed to provide best practice advice on the practicalities of replacing fossil-based heating systems with greener alternatives. So over to Michael. Yes, good afternoon, Michael. It's great to have you. How are you? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm all good. Thanks, Sarah. Finally coming out of a, a pandemic uh, world and uh, looking forward to doing a few normal things, such as getting back to the barbers and things. I think it's at the top of a priority list at the moment. Yeah, you for, for you and me me both, <laughs> very much looking forward to that. I was saying it's almost like a big, big event. Previously, one day festival, but this year, no, just a, a haircut's enough. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, great. Well, as the title of this episode suggests, we are here to very quickly run through um, everything we need to know about low carbon heating on the road to net zero. Um, so obviously great to have you here as business development manager for Heat Pump Solutions. Um, so for those that aren't aware of what, what the offers are and how that fits with the broader company energy pathway approach, um, could we get a brief introduction to, to kick off the conversation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so our solutions are all based on, on putting the customer's strategy, energy profile and site composition at the core of what we do. Um, we're not a heat pump manufacturer, but what we do have is a fantastic engineering skill set and knowledge and experience across a, a wide range of sectors. And we look to offer a fully designed and engineered heat pump system that best fits an individual site. And what we do is we look to try and split the design of the solution into three key parts. And this is maybe something that we'll probably come on to discuss a little bit later, mm -hmm. but there's still a lot of misconceptions when switching out a traditional fossil fuel burning system for a heat pump system around how you can just switch like for like. And this really isn't the case. Heat pumps are designed to operate at much lower flow temperature, for example, and this needs to be taken into consideration during the initial design phase. So when we start, we start by looking at where and how the heat is being utilised. What is the application of the heat? What emitters are currently being used on site? Are the existing emitters capable with a heat pump system? What are the output temperatures looking to be achieved? What is the peak load demand? 
So very much the first part of our solution is all about looking at specifically what is it what we're trying to deliver. The second part of the solution is looking at what energy sources are available. Now, traditionally, these have been air source or ground source. But as we know, these come with their own specific issues. Air source, relatively speaking, will deliver a low COP, whilst ground source will deliver higher COPs, but do come with increased costs, mainly due to the costs around the engineering work, such as installing the ground array, the boreholes, etc. So we're seeing more and more intuitive solutions start coming out on the market and being utilised. I think water source is one that's becoming more and more prevalent. And we're seeing some great development as well around things such as waste heat recovery, waste wastewater and sewage sources. We've even got projects that are looking to use heat from disused mine shafts. So we're getting really intuitive with the energy sources that we're looking to utilise. And, and ultimately what these are doing is they're assisting in, in delivering more for, affordable and cost effective solutions. So they're the first two stages that we look at. And then finally, the third part of our design is the actual heat pump selection itself. So taking into account the energy source, the application, the peak load, etc., you can see when you put all this together that actually the heat pump selection is a very small part of the process. And indeed, in some cases, a very small part of the cost. And this is where our strengths lie is in delivering the full engineered system. And that's really our mission is to be able to deliver a low carbon heat solution that is specific to a client site and delivers the optimal performance for them. Great. And you've mentioned there how technologies vary depending on well, where, where a building is. But I wanted to look at like building type or business type. So have there been any particular sectors where you've seen um, high, high uptake? Yeah, I, th I think there's a definite split between public and, and private sector. And I think some of this has, has mainly been driven by the recent public sector decarbonisation scheme, which, which has assisted the public sector in, in funding low carbon technologies. Um, but even before this, I think as a whole, the public sector are very much focused on decarbonisation and decarbonisation of heat. And without a doubt, they're focused and driven to meet their carbon reduction targets. And, and they aren't as focused on cost savings as perhaps the private sector is. I think the private sector, we are seeing businesses looking to transition to low carbon heat to help support their net zero pledges and, and recent schemes such as the renewable heat incentive has helped. Um, we also have the IETF scheme which is specifically looking at low carbon solutions in a process environment. But as a whole, and with very few exceptions, uh, a private sector project is still expected to deliver a payback on investment and typically to be less than five to seven years or, or we won't really get them signed off. And I think from a business perspective, you can absolutely understand the reasons for doing so. Um, we're living in a very precarious economic time and businesses need to protect their interests and ultimately their employees, first of all and potentially a multi-million pound investment in a heating system, what doesn't offer any kind of acceptable payback aren't being prioritised. I think, I think that being said, there's also a very high percentage of all new build construction projects, be it private or public sector, that are now being specced to include heat pump or low carbon solutions. So we are seeing, seeing really good progress in that, and recent and upcoming policy changes have certainly helped in that, but we do need to address the, the issue of transitioning existing private sector sites across to low carbon heating and I think we need to give assistance in making these schemes a little bit more commercially attractive. Mm. When when you mention the upcoming homes and offices I'm presuming you mean things like the future home standard right? Abs absolutely yeah yeah. That makes complete sense and we've touched there on some of the biggest challenges so you've touched on payback times and maybe yeah not being able to fit like for like and needing different different systems but I wondered if there are other 
any other major challenges? I've heard from other people about, for example, um, is electricity costs competitive with gas, especially if it's it's re renewable? Um, so any other challenges and crucially how we can how we can overcome them? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think at the minute, certainly for existing sites looking to retrofit to low carbon heating, we're seeing a bit of a perfect storm in terms of market conditions that are hindering the large scale adoption. You know, we live in a world at the moment where electricity pricing is massively levied and, and gas is subsidised. And from a perspective of decarbonisation, our power grid, this has massively helped. You know, we've seen more and more renewables come online and these these now deliver a very high percentage of our power demand, which is absolutely fantastic. But as we now turn to focus on decarbonising our gas grid, the current market is still driving a gas burning culture from a pricing perspective. Uh, average gas price is around 2p per kilowatt and electricity near 13 or even 14p per kilowatt. It means any heat pump has to deliver a very high COP just to leave the customer cost neutral from an operational perspective and that's even without taking into account the initial cost of the insulation. So this is something that we definitely need to address or look to give greater assistance around. At CBS we do offer funded solutions to help with the cost of the initial installation and these definitely do assist. And the added innovation that I spoke about a little bit earlier are seeing more cost effective solutions come out there but we really do need to, to give support around that energy pricing but we do have reasons to be optimistic around the large-scale adoption as well. Yeah, I wanted to come on to that because it does look like policy is going to change very soon um, in, in this space. And you've talked about some ways there that businesses can help change their own mindsets and processes, maybe with obviously help from, from a third party. But we're also expecting the heat and building strategy um, soon. So what, what, what role do you think policy has to, has to play here? Yeah, a really good question. Um, I think it's a mixture of all your points. I think just looking at what we can do from changing mindset and, and something that I mentioned a little bit earlier on were around the comparisons that we naturally make between heat pump based systems and traditional heating systems. And I think a big part of this, what still needs more understanding and a change in mindset is, is around the perceived costs at, at this stage. Mm. Um, you know, if a business or even an homeowner is looking to replace, say, a gas boiler for a like for like gas boiler replacement, the majority of the costs will just be for the appliance replacement. Yeah, there'll be some installation costs taking the boiler off the wall and putting a boiler back on the wall, maybe a little bit of upgrade work, but that's that's all. The majority of the infrastructure is already on site, it's already on, in place. The gas supply pipe and the installation is already there. The distribution system, such as the central heating pipes, is already in place. We already have suitable and compatible emitters, usually in the form of radiators. So the cost comparison to a heat pump alternative is a fraction of the cost at this stage because a heat pump alternative is a long term infrastructure upgrade. A little bit similar to how a gas fired system was, say, 50 or so years ago. We need to install a new energy source, be it air, ground or water. We need to upgrade the emitters and then we need to finally find a, a suitable appliance. And these infrastructure upgrades, again, similar to the infrastructure upgrades we made when initially installing gas into our homes and businesses a long-term investment and when we've made that initial investment in 15 20 years time again when a business or a homeowner comes to replacing that heat pump the infrastructure will already be in place similar to how the gas pipes in place now and the radiators are already in place so the cost for changing out that heat pump at that stage will be comparable maybe even cheaper than that light for like gas replacement i mentioned at the beginning and i think for me that that is a big change in the mindset that's needed at this stage that 
the, the, the what's needed is a long-term infrastructure investment. It isn't as simple as watching out like for like, and that's why the perceived costs at this moment are a lot higher. Um, I think around your second point, when we start looking at policy change, you know, since 2013, the UK has seen 7% annual growth in heat pump sales. And this is compared to around 44% annual growth in Europe over the same period. If we look at France, they massively driven this down through policy change. Sweden introduced an aggressive carbon tax and Denmark are currently changing their tax rates for gas and electrical for residential customers. And I think Germany and Holland are also following suit. So it's clear that some kind of policy change is needed in in the UK to help switch to low carbon heating. I think if I was to have a wish list, I'd love to see some movement on the current gas and electricity prices. You know, this giving heat pump operational costs that are a lot more reflective of their efficiencies. You know, if we were to look at current energy pricing, we can have a heat pump that's 400% efficient, being more expensive to run than a gas boiler, then less, that's less than 100% efficient, which makes no logical sense Certainly when we continue to hear how the government is dedicated to a low carbon future. I, I think if, if this isn't possible, then 100% we need to look at our carbon tax will assist. But ultimately, we need to live in a world where our market conditions support our well-published national strategy of a low carbon heat transition. I don't think we need to make massive changes, but I do think probably a little bit of support is required. We, we have a fantastic trade body in the Heat Pump Federation. Um, the work Laura Bishop and Bean Beanland and the guys do over there with lobbying government acting on the behalf of the members is, is absolutely fantastic. And I think as a whole, it's, it's a very exciting time for the heat pump industry with innovation and engineering give us more cost effective solutions. Businesses becoming more aware of their carbon in, impact. I think we can be very excited about a bright future ahead of us. And again, thank you to Michael for his time and to Centrica Business Solutions for sponsoring this episode. If you have enjoyed our interviews today, Michael, along with his colleagues, has contributed to a free downloadable ED Explains guide on low carbon heating. You can access that at ed.net forward slash downloads. That's ed.net forward slash downloads. Of course, the net zero movement has been gathering pace far beyond just heat. And with that in mind, it's time for our net zero news in brief the part of this podcast where we pull out three stories that you need to know about from the last month. First up, more than 300 CEOs have signed an open letter to the Biden administration calling for the US's proposed 2050 net zero target to be backed with an ambitious 2030 emissions goal. Coordinated by the We Mean Business Coalition, the letter states the case for reducing emissions by at least 50% by 2030 against a 2010 baseline. This is in line with the IPCC's 2018 report recommendations. Business signatories of that letter include Walmart, Unilever, Verizon and Starbucks. Also staying in the US private sector, after announcing a net zero financed emissions target for 2050 earlier this year, JP Morgan Chase has pledged 2.5 trillion US dollars to climate and sustainability activities by the end of 2030. Similarly, Bank of America, which has the same long-term goal on financed emissions, has confirmed plans to spend 1 trillion US dollars on sustainable business initiatives this decade, up from 300 billion in the previous decade. And last but by no means least, Healthcare Without Harm has worked with Arup to develop what it claims is the first global framework for the net zero transition in the healthcare sector. The report assesses the main emission sources for the sector in dozens of countries, providing specific policy recommendations on things like low carbon buildings, clean ambulances and transport, and engaging suppliers. 
So that's it for our Net Zero news in brief and for our speaker interviews. But before I sign off for this episode, I'd like to take a moment to remind you of that ED Explains guide on low carbon heating, which forms part of the same ED Master series with Centrica Business Solutions as this podcast episode. The guide is free and can be found at ed.net forward slash downloads. That's ed.net forward slash downloads. Look for the bright red cover. It's currently the second item on that page at the time that I'm recording, which is Friday 16th April. I'd also like to remind everyone that registration is now open for our next online masterclass, which is also on low carbon heat and also hosted in association with Centrica Business Solutions. This 45 minute session is designed to answer all of your FAQs on the topic, outlining the business case for various technologies in various contexts, exploring key opportunities and challenges. This masterclass is taking place at 1pm BST on Thursday 29th of April. If you register, you'll be able to stream on demand once the broadcast has finished. Michael Firth from Centrica Business Solutions, who we've had on this podcast, will be on the panel for this one and I will be chairing. So we hope to see as many of you there as possible, virtually and socially distanced, of course. You can see the full agenda and sign up at ed.net forward slash webinars. That's ed.net forward slash webinars. In the meantime, please do subscribe to the ED Podcast portfolio wherever you get your podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, iTunes and Spotify. And for more Net Zero news, the ED website and newsletter will be your go-to. But for now, it's a goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.